So we've, we've, we've gone, we've done our, we said we we're gonna do this for a year and we've, we're pretty much at a year. So um, we're not gonna do probably a whole lot more, but as you know, um, it, we may get up to the year 871 tonight. There's a lot of history left. So uh, I don't know if, um, We'll just kind of talk about it. I don't know if it's something we want to continue into the new year. Uh, or maybe we do a wrap-up and hit some really high points. Um, but there's a lot of history left. And as we move into the years now, I mean, history is becoming more concentrated. So a lot of things are happening um, so anyways, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that next year, but let's, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Lord, I lift up all those who are not well. Lord, I know there's so many struggling with this, um, whether it's allergies, the virus, the flu, don't know what all it is. Father, I just pray you'd pour out healing grace upon our families upon so many that are sick and suffering. Father, I pray that you would just strengthen them, watch over them and protect them, and bring healing to their bodies. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, teach us each and every day and help us to be a people mindful as we live in the present Lord, help us always to learn from our past. We thank you, Father, for making us part of your story. Thank you for our own lives who are part of history. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to believe that our lives somehow don't count because they seem insignificant in the grand scheme of things. We know from looking at history there that is not true. Some of the most insignificant characters have contributed to some of the most significant things across time. And so, Father, we just thank you for your sovereign grace and for working in our lives and through our lives. And help us to be a people faithful and expectant, Lord, that you can take the weak things confound the wise and the things that seem to be nothing, Lord, to actually bring to nothing those who think they are mighty and powerful. Father, thank you for using your church in that way. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so we um, kind of left off with Charlemagne last week. And um, I'd said that the Treaty of Verdun, in that treaty, it divided the kingdom between Charlemagne's grandsons, and that is true. <clears throat> but Charles' son, Louis the Pious, or Louis I, he is the son of Charlemagne. He took the throne after his father's death. And it was Lewis who uh, wanted to make sure that the kingdom was divided uh, in, amongst his sons. And so 
the Frankish kingdom was, in essence, divided among these sons of Louis I or the grandsons of Charlemagne. And it, it was that treaty that basically kind of separated France from what, what we know as France, from what we know as Germany. And they were never united again. That, that kingdom was not really ever united again the way it was under Charlemagne. And there was the power of that kingdom begin to wane after the death of Charlemagne. And we'll see this as we move into our, our next, um, next thing that we'll look at, which is the invasion of the Vikings. So the first recorded Viking invasion, or what's known as the first invasion um, or raid, was in 793 at a place called Landisfarne. It was a monastery uh, on the northern coast of England. And the Vikings came and they sacked the monastery at Landisfarne. And that is considered the, the beginning of the Viking uh, era. Or um, the Vikings... It's a little bit different. The Vikings weren't like this unified kingdom that decided they were going to just move into Europe. So the Vikings, of course, inhabited an area that we call Scandinavia today, and that Scandinavian countries, um, the three primary countries that the Vikings came from were Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. And each of those countries had its own challenges. And so what basically happened is those people that inhabited those regions, we call them the Vikings, they lived in these regions and as their populations grew, their ability to sustain their populations themselves their ability to be self-sustaining became challenged because each of these regions presented challenges in terms of living, growing food. So, for instance, Norway has very little land that you can actually farm. It's, it's more mountainous, it's very rocky, and so the Vikings there lived on the coast Generally, you had those fjords, which are basically steep valleys with water at the bottom. Um, and so there was not a lot of land in Norway where Vikings could grow food and, and have animals and crops that could, could sustain any large level of population. Sweden, on the other hand, had much more area to farm, but the, the amount of sunshine that Sweden gets is very limited, so the growing season is very short. And in all of these countries, especially Norway and Sweden, um, Sweden especially, it, it gets really cold there. So that's not real practical for sustaining a a large population. 
Well, Denmark wasn't as cold, and it had much more land that you could farm um, if you could dry it out. And so Denmark has so much water that the ability to farm in Denmark was also limited. So each of these three regions had its own challenge. And so the Vikings um, set out and they started their, they would have these annual times where they would go out and they would raid and they would go take from others. For the Vikings, it was a matter of survival. Um, well, I didn't even realize I had my hat on. Uh, it was a matter of survival. And the Vikings gained a, a very um, terrible reputation. They were very cruel. They were ruthless. And um, they, they just were considered cruel and barbaric and uncivilized. They did what they did uh, because they were trying to survive. And so their people were more important than the people they were raiding. The cry of the um, Christians, so by this time, Europe, for the most part, had become Christianized. And so, <clears throat> if you think about it, by 800, many of the pagan tribes and peoples had been evangelized. And so there was, there was a measure of peace across these areas of Europe. We were still in the dark ages, so there, there was still a lot of uncertainty and people trying to survive. There were still these, these uh, pagan tribes, but the gospel had spread, and there was beginning to be um, the evangelization and the Christianization of, of Europe. <clears throat> but then these pagan Vikings come, and they invade Christian Europe, and the cry of the Christians was, um, was deliver us, O Lord, from the fury of the Northmen or the Norsemen. So the Vikings were called Northmen or Norsemen because they came from the north. And so, as I said, there were three areas, the Swedish Vikings, the Danish Vikings, and the Norwegian Vikings. And so each of these groups of Vikings from these three different countries or these three different areas really went to different regions of Europe and, and to, to raid and ultimately to settle. So at first it started out as annual raiding parties who would go and, uh, and then they'd go back home. As the population grew and as they realized that Europe uh, was a much better place to live than a lot of the places they had there in Scandinavia, they began to settle in Europe. So, for instance, the Swedish Vikings concentrated their raids and ultimately their settlements in the lands of present-day Russia and Ukraine. In fact, Kiev was a city that they established and became a principal city. It was a Viking city. The name Russia comes from the Viking tribe. It was a Viking tribe called the Rus. And so Russia itself, the name Russia, comes from the Vikings. <clears throat> so it's not that all Russians are Vikings. There was native people there. But the Vikings came in and they settled 
and greatly influenced. And so across all of these areas of Europe, um, you know, Bradley's Ukrainian. Bradley's this redheaded guy. There's no doubt that, that Bradley has Viking blood in him because that, those Vikings settled there. Same with, um, for instance, the Danish Vikings. The Danish Vikings, they raided into England and parts of Europe, France and Spain. But the Danish Vikings raided England and they, for 300 years, controlled areas of Europe. So the area of Europe called York was controlled by the Vikings for 300 years. And uh, it was the Danish Vikings also that settled an area of northern France along the coast called Normandy. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. And it was that those Danish Vikings who first uh, raided that Landisfarne monastery. Then you have the Norwegian Vikings, and those Norwegian Vikings raided the areas of Scotland, Ireland. Uh, they also went into parts of Northern Europe. The Vikings also went around, and you can see where they even went into the Mediterranean Sea. They, they traded with uh, people all over the world. They were tremendous shipbuilders, and they had uh, developed a way to build ships where they could build great long ships that were able to flex with the ocean without breaking up. And so they could travel long distances by sea, and they did. In fact, the Norwegian Vikings discovered by accident Iceland, um, and then once they settled Iceland, and it became, um, you know, too, too, um, too crowded, they moved on because they knew there was a place west of Iceland that someone had accidentally discovered, and they went to Greenland, and they settled Greenland. And then they also realized that there was another place west of that that someone had once seen in one of their travels, this land with great trees and forests and, and, and wildlife, and they called it Vinland. And they traveled to Vinland and settled, uh, had settlements in Vinland, or what we would call North America. So uh, actually, quite a long time before Christopher Columbus, the Vikings sailed to and settled North America. Well, those Norwegian Vikings were the ones primarily who, who went to these other areas. <clears throat> and they did that across spans of time. Right now, we're kind of concentrating on the Vikings' invasion of Europe because it's had, it had a, a great impact on Europe. So some of the towns, think about York, England. York, England was a Viking settlement. Dublin, Ireland, the city of Dublin was... Um, largely, uh, it was a Viking city, and the Vikings controlled it. When we were in Dublin, uh, you have the Viking Museum there, and they still have, they find, they find stuff not infrequently as they're building buildings in, in Dublin um, from the Viking era. And so with the, the invasion of the Vikings across Christian Europe, um, it was terrible. The Vikings on purpose, 
wanted to be terrorizing. So they were terrorists. They were the true definition of terrorist. And they wanted to be terrifying. They wanted people to be terrified of them. And they did terrible things. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so remember, on, in Europe, so 476, the Western Roman Empire falls. You've got the Germanic tribes now who, who remember the, the Vandals sacked Rome um, more than once. They were the first ones to do it. Uh, you had the Goths, you had these, these, these uh, Germanic tribes who, who basically brought down the Roman Empire and then they kind of solidified and, and it was the Franks uh, who kind of now reestablished control across parts of Europe that were once the Roman Empire. And that Frankish king... Uh, now, the line of kings went through the, remember the Carolingians, um, that was when Pepin, the son of Charles Martel, talked the Pope into crowning him king. He becomes king. His son, Charlemagne, becomes one of the greatest kings of the Middle Ages. So the Frankish kingdom now is, is what is ruling across parts of what we know as Western Europe today. And now here come the Vikings. And the Vikings invade Europe. And, and of course, now remember, there was a group of people that the Franks were constantly fighting, the Anglo-Saxons, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes. These were also Germanic tribes that invaded England. And they kind of took hold of England. Who was in England before the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes? Who were the native people of England? What was the Celts? And the Celts were there, and <clears throat> I don't know if we talked about him, but in history there was a king named Arthur, um, King Arthur, who was a Celtic king who fought valiantly against the Angles and the Saxons trying to preserve uh, Celtic England um, after the fall of the... Roman Empire. Well, eventually the Angles and the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons they became, um, really took hold in England. Um, in Northern Europe, the Franks are fighting the Angles and the Saxons. Now here come the Vikings, and the Vikings begin to raid into parts of, of Europe. And so, for instance, the Vikings sail up um, the river, and they besiege Paris in 845 and 846. And they, they raided Paris more than once, and, then, and in 845 and 846, they besieged Paris. <clears throat> this is the heart of the Frankish kingdom. They're wreaking havoc. And so in 911, a Frankish, I mean, a Viking king named Rollo, um, whether he was Danish or Norwegian, we don't know. Eventually, the Vikings all kind of, especially the Danish and Norwegian Vikings, kind of came together. And uh, Rollo was thought to be a Danish Viking king. He was so successful in his raids against the Franks, and now they had settled in Frankish territory 
that the Frankish king gives a grant of land to Rollo in exchange for peace and loyalty to the, to the Franks. And so Rollo says, yeah, you give me this land and it becomes my land, then I will pledge peace with you and, and I will, I'll stop harassing you, stop raiding you, and I'll work together with you. And that's, that's what happened. And so the Franks gave to Rollo uh, a portion of land on the northern coast of France. It's an area called Normandy. And Normandy is named for the Northmen that already controlled that area. So it technically was Frankish kingdom, but the Vikings are like, it's our land. We've got it. We control it. You can either recognize that and be okay with that, or we'll just keep, we'll keep harassing you. We'll keep doing what we do, what Vikings do. And so the Franks made peace with the Vikings and gave Rollo that land called Normandy in, uh, along the coast of France. And so the people that lived in Normandy, the, 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 the various tribes there, they intermingled with the Vikings, and eventually these people became known as Normans. Now, if you know anything about your history, especially the history of Western Europe, the history of England, uh, and this all has an impact on America, the Normans were, were very, in, very influential in history uh, because now the Anglo-Saxons kind of are the people who are ruling. So the Angles and the Saxons created seven kingdoms across Britain. They divided Britain into seven kingdoms. Um, seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. But, but there was a problem. And the problem in England were the Danish Vikings. Because the Danish Vikings controlled a region called York. And they were constantly... Raiding, fighting. So this was not just true for the Danish Vikings who, who controlled this area of eastern England. But then you have the Norwegian Vikings who were up in Scotland and in Ireland. So when we went to Ireland, we went to this place called, um, um, what was it called? Glendalough. Glendalough in the Wicklow Mountains. And of course the... The striking feature at Glendalough is this giant tower. Well, these towers were common across Ireland uh, and other regions where there were Viking raids. So where they would have a monastery, they'd build these towers. And what would happen is when the Vikings would raid, everyone would, would go into this tower and climb up in this tower to get away from the Vikings. And the Vikings raided monasteries because monasteries is where people kept their valuables. So there weren't banks as we know them back in the day. There were no safety deposit boxes and vaults anywhere. So people trusted the priests and the monks who ran the monasteries. The monasteries is where the schools were. The monasteries became centers of community. And so they were very important um, fixtures in, in a culture. 
And so the monasteries became the places where people would put their valuables because there were people there that they could trust. Well, the Vikings figured this out, that the monasteries have stuff. They have valuable stuff. They have gold. They've got, you know, money. They've got things that are worth, it, worth stuff. So they would raid the monasteries. And they did this all across England, all across Scotland, all across Ireland, all across Europe. They did what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then they would take people as slaves. So what they didn't want, they would kill. Um, or they would, you know, there's countless stories of what the Vikings would do. And you know, They would come in like at Landisfarne. They, they took some of the monks as slaves. Others, they just threw them into the sea and let them drown. They didn't care. They, they took what was valuable to them. If it wasn't valuable to them, then they destroyed it or left it. Um, but they had a very purposeful method because they wanted to, they wanted to, in, to inflict terror upon people because they didn't want people to oppose them. So in England, for instance, they're, 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 the Saxons opposed them. And so there were people that fought against them. Um, all right, so Rollo becomes the first ruler of Normandy. He's a Viking. And the people who lived in that area together with the Vikings become known as Normans. When we were in Ireland, we went to a, to a little town called Trim. And there's a castle there in Trim. And the, the castle at Trim, which was built in 1172, is the first Norman castle in Ireland. The first Norman castle in Ireland, 1172. Norman, notice Norman. They were, by 1172, these are the French who are coming to England to try to take over England, take over Ireland. So this war between England and France, its roots go all the way back to the Franks and the Saxons and the Jutes who fought each other. And then the Vikings come and they settle in this area that, that becomes known as Normandy because of the Northmen who settle it. And the people there become Normans. And there was, we're not there yet in history, but there's a very important Norman ruler. Does anyone know what his name might be? Yes, William the Conqueror was a Norman. He was a descendant of Rollo, the Viking king. And William, the conqueror, becomes the king of England. And so um, you see how these things, you know, here comes this guy's raiding, you know, because they need more stuff to buy food and and they can't get it themselves, so they're going to get it from someone else. And eventually it's like, gosh, why don't we just take your land instead of your stuff? So we'll just come here and live. And they get legitimacy because they're there. They get a territory. They get a name. And pretty soon the descendant of Rollo becomes the king of England. It's pretty amazing. 
in 863, while all this is happening with the Vikings, because remember, the Vikings ruled York for 300 years. <clears throat> in, 86, in 863, so in Eastern Europe, you've got a group of people called the Slavs. Now, I am half Slav. My father was a full-blooded uh, Bohemian. Uh, Bohemia was a Slavic nation at this time. Bohemia, Moravia, there were a number of Slavic nations. The Bulgars were a very hostile group of Slavs. It's what the country of Bulgaria is named after. <clears throat> and in 863, around this time, the Bulgars are basically just bullying everybody. They've Already in, they've already attacked Constantinople, killed the Byzantine emperor, and, and the Slavic nations that are neighbors to the Bulgars, like the Moravians, they're, they're worried because the Bulgars are warlike and aggressive. And so the Moravian king named Rostislav goes to the new emperor of the Byzantine Empire and he says... We got to do something about the Bulgars, but I'm not sure war is the answer. We need a more long-term solution. Uh, Rostislav was a Christian. So he says, why don't we send missionaries into the Slavic nations and spread the gospel? Because if they get saved, they'll stop being who they are. They'll become good instead of evil. And... So they put the call out in two Greek brothers from Thessalonica named Methodius and Cyril. Answer the call to evangelize the Slavic nations. So Methodius and Cyril, these two Greeks, answer the call and they go to the Slavic nations and they realize the Slavs have a language, but they don't have a written language. They have a spoken language, but they have no written language. There's no alphabet. So there was no, and they don't speak Greek, and they don't speak Latin, so they can't read Greek, and they can't read Latin. They can only speak Slavonic. And so Cyril and Methodius create a Slavic alphabet called the Cyrillic alphabet. And they translated the Bible into the Slavonic or Slavic language using the Cyrillic alphabet, Cyrillic named after Cyril. It is the foundation of the Russian alphabet today. Um, I, Bulgaria, <clears throat> Bulgaria, there's another, I can't remember the other Slavic nation that kept that basically Cyrillic alphabet. Bulgaria, was it Romania? I don't remember which one. The, most of the other Slavic nations like Bohemia, Moravia, those guys eventually adopted Latin as their language. And so in their churches, Latin and the Latin Bible became what they used and they embraced Latin. But Bulgaria, the Russians, uh, and one other Slavic country I can't remember right now, kept the Cyrillic alphabet. And so that alphabet created by Methodius and Cyril in, in the ninth century is, is still in use today. If you ever learned to speak or read Russian, you'd be using basically the Cyrillic alphabet. All right, <clears throat> then in 871, 
there arose a king in England, the king of Wessex. And this king, and this is where we're going to end tonight, I think. This king is the only king of England to carry the moniker or the title great. Do you know who it is? you know what his name is? Alfred. Alfred the Great, King of England. So remember at this time, so England, when, when the Roman Empire, when the Western Roman Empire fell, Rome, even before the fall in 476, Rome had kind of abandoned England because they had so many problems back on the mainland. And so as Rome basically pulled out of England, um, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, those were the three primary tribes that went into England and began to take over. The Celts were the native people there, if you will, who had been there when the Romans got there, and they, they coexisted pretty well with the Romans. But now the Romans are gone, and these Germanic tribes are coming in, and they more or less take over England. So the Anglo-Saxons, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes, they take over England, primarily the Angles and the Saxons. It's where we get the term Anglo-Saxon. And they divided England into seven kingdoms. And one of those kingdoms, uh, at age 22, young Alfred becomes the king. Now, Alfred was one of five kids. And it is said that, um, that his, mother, his mother told her sons, I'm going to give a prize to the to the one of you that learns to read first. Alfred was the youngest, but he won the prize. He learned to read first. And at age seven, Alfred visits Rome and made a great impression upon Alfred in visiting Rome at age seven. And what he saw in Rome, if you can imagine, and now think about how old Rome is, you know, right now, you know, in 871, Alfred becomes king. So Rome has been in existence for a long time. It's an ancient city. It's, it's you know, of course, it's diminished from the, the glory it had in many ways, but not, not really. Uh, so Alfred goes and he sees a city and a civilization and, and he's struck by it. And so he becomes the king of Wessex, the western kingdom of the Saxons. So Wessex was the western kingdom of the Saxons. He's not the king of England. He's the king of Wessex. But his main problem are the Danish Vikings because the Danish Vikings still have this foothold in England and they're constantly warring and fighting. In his first year as king, he had to fight nine battles against the Danes. So at age 22, he becomes king. He's got to fight nine battles in his first year as king. I mean, that's, that's kind of like a, a baptism of fire. 
The Danish king at that time, the chieftain, his name was Guthrum. And it, it, the story goes that Alfred dresses up, he disguises himself as a, like an entertainer or something, and he goes to the Viking camp, and he's hanging out there, and he hears the plans of the Vikings of how they're going to defeat, you know, uh, Alfred and his people. And Alfred goes back with the war plan of the Vikings and prepares accordingly, and he defeats them. Well, so what happens is, um, eventually, Guthrum, basically, Guthrum becomes a Christian. So, Guthrum comes to faith in Christ, and Alfred goes to Guthrum, and he says, why don't we, why don't we work together? And so, Guthrum agreed, and Guthrum joins forces with Alfred, and they actually, Guthrum, who is a Viking, a Danish Viking, is now fighting off the invading Vikings with Alfred, protecting their Christian land. And so it's like, this is not our land. This is Christ's land. This is God's land. And we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. So Guthrum got this, joins with Alfred in opposing the invading Vikings. And, and so they work together. The city of London, Alfred took it in 886. So it, it was, he who did he take it from? He took it from the Vikings. The Vikings controlled London. And, and so they subdued the, the Vikings. They subdued the Danes. And so there was a region along the eastern coast of England called Danelaw or Daneland. And that was a region that the Vikings lived in. And they were relegated to that area peacefully for a while. Eventually, more aggressive Vikings came and invaded, and the wars started, started back up, not because Guthrum changed sides, but because more Vikings came. And so this was still an ongoing struggle. But now, if we think about Alfred, some very important things, he's a very important figure in history. So remember, when, so he's the king of Wessex. But when Alfred leads the army and defeats Guthrum and then is able to see Guthrum, the Viking terror, come to faith in Christ and then join sides with, with Alfred and fight off the opposing Vikings who keep invading, the people of England are amazed. And Alfred becomes so popular because he is, in their mind, you've saved us from the Vikings, from this terror, from these terrible people. This is how he earns the title great. And so Alfred then is not just recognized as the king of Wessex, but all seven kingdoms recognize Alfred as their king. They want Alfred to be their king. So it's not that Alfred set out to take over all of the kingdoms that had been there. It's just, you know, um, it's been said before, 
well, we say this cream rises to the top. It's often said the same about leadership. And so Alfred was a true leader, and God ordained him for such a time as he was born for these purposes. And so he becomes Alfred the Great, and the people embrace him as uh, their king over these seven different kingdoms in England. Now, think about it. You have seven kingdoms across England ruled by seven different rulers. What do you think the laws are like in England? If you, I mean, England's not a big place, right? So if you're traveling to some other region and something's legal in your region, but it's not legal in this region, you could get into trouble without even realizing it, right? And so one of the things that Alfred did was Alfred established what was called common law. So Alfred says, okay, if I'm, if I'm king of this land, of all these kingdoms, we need a common law across this land. It doesn't make sense to have seven different sets of laws if we're all one people. And so <clears throat> remember, Alfred learned to read at a very young age. And Alfred goes to Rome at age seven, and he sees Rome, and he's struck by the, what a true civilization is. And you can't help but think that Alfred probably goes back to England, and he sees the fragmented tribal system. I mean, he was called a king, but it wasn't anything like what he would have seen and experienced in Rome. <clears throat> He's wise enough to know that you can't rule a nation, you can't be a ruler over various groups of people and, have, and not have common commonality, common laws, common identities. So he establishes common law across those kingdoms of England, and he bases his common law on the Ten Commandments. So... English common law is based on the Ten Commandments. So where did our common law come from? England. English common law was based on the Ten Commandments. Our laws here in America are based on, this is why we say that we have a Judeo-Christian Heritage, the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God was instrumental in everything we did as a founding country. I don't care what anybody says today. That is just a fact. You cannot deny unless you just want to be a liar. And there's lots of liars out there. But this goes all the way back to Alfred the Great. We have what we have today in large part because of what Alfred the Great did in establishing common law across England and using the Ten Commandments as the filter through which those laws were written. Let's see, what else did Alfred do? So Alfred also, Alfred also valued education. Now, we saw this, remember, with Charlemagne. Charlemagne learned to read 
as an adult, he never really learned to write very well. He tried really hard, but it, it was too late for him. And so he didn't want people to suffer the same fate. So across the Frankish kingdom, he makes free education, public education. At every monastery, we say public, it was centered in the church. So the education of the populace was centered in the church based on the scripture. What they used to learn to read and write, they used the Bible. Well, Alfred saw the same thing across England. He saw that when the Romans left and things spiraled into, uh, you know, tribal conflict. So, you know, if you're living in peace, you can sit and leisurely read a book, right? But if you're not living in peace, you can't, you don't have time to do that. And so... In just a very short period of time, you know, in a generation, think about what you can lose in a generation. And, and so in that time that the Romans left, law and order goes away. These tribes come in and they're just trying to take over, overthrow the native people, take over land, take over power. Education, illiteracy becomes the rule instead of the exception. So Alfred wanted to reinstate education. He wanted to restore the educational system of England that was lost at that time to the Vikings um, because of the Viking raids. And so it bothered Alfred that there were so few English who were actually educated who could read and write. And so he decided to change that. Um, he did another thing. He created what was called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So another thing Alfred did, Alfred translated the Bible into Old English. So he translated the Bible into the language of the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, that language was called Old English. Uh, it's where half of our language comes from today. So half of our English comes from Old English. Uh, the other half comes from Latin and other, uh, you know, German, other, other people groups and other languages. But a large part of our, at least half of our language, comes from Old English. So uh, Alfred translates the Bible into Old English so that the Anglo-Saxons could actually have the Bible to read and to study. He instituted what's called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. And it was a, basically a running account of current events. And this was published for centuries in England, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. And so... Alfred said, let's start making a running chronology of events. And so they did that. And they have a written detailed history that was recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that Alfred started. Uh, Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, said this of Alfred the Great, I do not think that there ever was in the world a man more worthy of the regard of posterity than Alfred the Great. 
Through laws, education, literature, and songs, King Alfred greatly helped shape the nation of England. Another thing that he wanted to do, he wanted the English to have a common identity. So you had these tribes. You had seven kingdoms from these seven tribes. He didn't want the people of England to identify with their tribe. He wanted the people of England to identify as English. And so Alfred worked really hard to give the people of England a national identity. So they didn't just see themselves as a Danish Viking or a West Saxon. He wanted them to see themselves as English. And so if you think about England, the nation of England, it's a relatively small nation. But if you think about the impact England has had on world history, it's really quite profound. And that did not happen because the English did not have an identity. They did have an identity. And Alfred the Great, in large part, gave England, he birthed for them this national identity of what it means to be English. And it had a huge, huge impact upon history. All right, any, any questions, anything there? That's about all I got for you tonight. Yes. I wouldn't say he was the first one, but he was the first one to do it for England. And, and because, because we were so tied to England, it has had a great impact on us. Um, so there were other rulers, like Byzantine rulers, who, who ruled based on you know, God's word and God's law. So we can't say Alfred was the first one to do it. But in terms of England's history and the direct impact that history has on us, it's really quite amazing. I mean, it's, it's very impactful for us. Um, and so it, it's not that Alfred did something that no one had ever done before, but Alfred didn't have to do that. And what it shows us about Alfred is that Alfred was not just thinking about himself, his own power, his own position. Alfred was thinking beyond himself, and Alfred was thinking about those who would come long after him. You know, his whole thing of education, his whole thing of making common law, his whole thing, and basing that on the scripture, his whole thing of trying to give the English a national identity to, to get rid of the tribal conflict. We're all English. We're not our various tribes. If you think about what's happening in America today, we are doing the exact opposite of what Alfred did. We are creating tribalism in America. I mean, we are purposefully doing this. And in creating tribalism in America, we are contributing to the fast decline of our culture. Alfred was wise and he saw if we're ever gonna be anything as a people, we gotta stop this infighting. We've gotta have a national identity. We gotta get rid of our tribal identities and see ourselves as one people. You would think America would know that lesson. 
It's what made America great. It's what made us who we are. But we obviously have forgotten that. Maybe because we don't teach history anymore. I wonder how many kids in the public school learn about Alfred the Great and the actual contributions he made to our own well-being here in America. Probably not too many. What else? So Charlemagne had close ties with uh, the church. Yes. Think by now that's severed and all What Char what the No, the Franks didn't, so, so there was still, <clears throat> the relationship between the popes and the Frankish kings was still there, absolutely. And, um, <clears throat> hold on a second. Um, we, I think we talked about this last, did we talk about this last week? Um, yeah, in 800, so Alfred 871, but you know, in 800, Charlemagne was crowned the, the, Holy the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So now in 800, you have the establishment of what's called the Holy Roman Empire. This Holy Roman Empire, which is centered in Germany, France, in Europe here, north of, you know, it's not that it didn't include Italy, it, it, because the popes were part of this, um, it, it did include uh, the popes. The popes crowned the emperor. And so this Holy Roman Emperor would be a, a force in history moving forward. So there were still the ties there. But <clears throat> it's not that. So this is why we end up with the Reformation in 1500. Because, yes, there was a tie to the church, and some of those ties were good. And some of those influences were good and contributed to good things, but there were also things that weren't good. So, for instance, you know, who became the bishops? Well, what happens now that you've kind of, uh, you've given power to the church, so you got the papal states, and now a pope has crowned an emperor. And so, who's got the power, the emperor or the pope? Well, would you be the, would you be the emperor if the pope wouldn't have crowned you? So surely the Pope's got the power, but then the emperor's going, but wait, I'm the emperor, and you're just the Pope. No, I have the power. And we're going to see, if we continue working through our timeline, if you guys want to, we'll see where these conflicts play out. I mean, they manifest. So conflicts that they can't see in 800 become full-blown conflicts later on in history because now... Who's got the power, the papacy or the emperor? Does the pope or the emperor have the power? And so, uh, so in terms of the emperor, who's the emperor? He's the king. Now, remember, um, we, we, haven't, we haven't talked a lot about this, but in the Dark Ages, in the early Middle Ages, what was the system that was established across Europe? It's called feudalism. <clears throat> so the feudal system where... The lords own the land, and who were the lowest people on the totem pole? The serfs, and then you have, you, you go up from there, but nobody owns the land except the lord, and he lets people live on the land, he lets people use the land, but the lord has the land. Well, who gave the lord the land? Who owns the land ultimately? The king does. 
And so who's the king going to give land to to build a castle for defense or to build a city for trade? Who's he going to give that, that land to? People loyal to him or people opposed to him? Loyal to him. And so what happens um, in, 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 in a lot of places, the bishops who oversee all the churches, the bishops are the lords. They're, they're the guys who own the land, and the pope gives the bishopric to the lord who owns the land because somebody's got to take care of, somebody's got to be in charge here. So it kind of makes sense in some ways, except there's also, you know, some conflict of interest here too. And then later on we'll see that you know, okay, is he bishop because he's really a godly man or is he bishop because you need a yes man there and he supports you? And he doesn't really care about the church or the people. He just cares about his power. And so we're going to see, you know, later on in history, you'll see where uh, the ring and the, the, the staff and the ring that was awarded, uh, the Pope awarded that, and, and it, it was a symbol of power, um, it wasn't necessarily a symbol of godliness. And so you see where these now these positions that later develop, we're still in the early stages, but they develop as history goes on, and these positions become very politicized. And so the lines between church and state become blurred in a really bad way uh, because there is so much political corruption. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that started right here with the crowning of Charlemagne as the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Now remember, with the Treaty of Verdun, the Frankish Empire is kind of separated. Well, what's going to happen is eventually these individual nations are going to develop. And so you're going to have a king of Germany, you're going to have a king of France, you're going to have a king of Spain. You're going to have a king of Aquitaine. You're going to have a king of Normandy. You're going to have a king of all these big regions, little regions. Well, who becomes the, who's going to be the new Holy Roman Emperor? Who decides that? Guess who decides that? The Pope decides that. Well, if the Pope is needing certain people to be in power because they have the power, or I've got this conflict, now, the appointment of the emperor doesn't necessarily all depend on or the appointment of a king or the appointment of a bishop or the appointment of whatever doesn't all depend on maybe a royal lineage. Now, monarchies, you are born into those. And, um, <clears throat> but we're going to see later on that with the Holy Roman Empire, there, there was real conflict over... You know, who's got the power here? <clears throat> so, a lot of them started out using God's word to, to rule with, but men are corrupt, you know, unless they've been redeemed and uh, given new hearts. And just because they have titles doesn't mean they have new hearts. And we see that throughout history. I think Alfred the Great had a good heart. I think he was, uh, had a heart for God because he saw 
and had compassion on his people and did the things that, that would actually benefit uh, the kingdom of God and the people of his kingdom, which is why he's called great. And I think he deserves the title for sure. 